This morning we turn our attention to Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. And indeed, I was nervous coming to this section because of the nuance and the precision, and my nervousness was uh, turned out to be true because uh, it's, it caused some in the first hour some angst. And so I just get to share that angst with you this hour too. So you get to join us in this incredible text. We come in Romans 9, 30 through 33, and Paul at this point is turning to a new theme. While he is still vindicating the character of God as in the work of the gospel, while he's still proving that God is fair, that he is not unjust in any of his dealings, he now answers another imposing question, a question that has been you know, on the hearts and the minds of the church for generations, which is, if God is indeed sovereign, if he is meticulously sovereign and directing all things, if he is electing and choosing, then how can anyone be saved? That is the question. Now here in Romans, I just want to point out Paul's style. If you turn back to Romans chapter 3, I just want to point out Paul's style of writing as he wrote in this book, he is raising a series of questions, and then upon those questions, he's giving answer. And he uses this phrase over and over again, what then? Unti. What then? Verse, chapter 3, verse then, or verse 1. Then what advantage? Literally, what then? Verse 7 of chapter, or verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? The same question comes up, and then he gives an answer over to chapter, turn over to chapter 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say? And then an implication that comes out of his teaching, and he asks, all right, then what then shall we say? Chapter 6 and verse 1, he says it again. What shall we say then? Literally, what then? Chapter 7 and verse 7, he says this, What shall we say then? What then? Chapter 8 and verse 31, he uses the phrase again there, What then shall we say to these things? What then? Chapter 9 and verse 14, What shall we say then? And now here, chapter 9 and verse 30, the start of our passage, What shall we say then? Paul is laying out an argument and he comes to the conclusion of the argument. He thinks of an implication and it comes up another question. And then with that question, explanation. That's what we find here in Romans 9 and verse 30. Paul is now going to take us down another journey, another path to help further expand the argument that he is making What shall we say then? How shall we answer the implications that he has just brought up in the previous chapter here? What we have been defending is that God is unchanging in his purposes and he accomplishes his purposes. Nobody can thwart the purposes of God. He will fulfill all that he promises to fulfill. And as we came out of end of chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that God is, is preserving and protecting us, the most natural question would begin Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Well, what about the Jews? Did God forsake them? 
to which Paul defends his, God's work of the gospel among the Jews by affirming God's sovereign right and prerogative to choose. God chooses one and not another. So not all Israel is Israel, but those whom God has chosen are. And then he walks through and defends that marvelous doctrine, and all it does is create within us some fears and uncertainties when we think about that doctrine. Is God fair to select one and not another person altogether? Is he fair that he chose one and not another, that he condemned Pharaoh, but he then accomplished his glories through him? Is God fair? And of course, then Paul answers that, and that's the series we just finished. He answers this emphatically, yes, he is fair because he is the creator, verse 20. What right does man have to stand over God and judge God? What right does God's creation have to come back to God and say, you must do it this way, and you are under, under our judgments? No, he, we are his creation. As he says in verse 20, the thing molded will not answer back to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? It has no place. Creation has no place to call back and question God. And then Paul went on and he justified that. Well, God, we must understand, not only is God fair because he is the creator, but he always operates justly. God is never unjust in his activities. He always operates justly and perfectly. And as we saw last week, he operates in such a way as to demonstrate his glory. That is what God is concerned about, is revealing the riches of his glory. He says that in verse 23. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. God was patient with sinners. He didn't wipe them out entirely. He demonstrated his patience to reveal his rich glory upon us whom he has showered with mercy. He's been rich and kind. And then we saw, as we concluded last week, that God promised this through the Old Testament prophets, that he had declared that this is what he was going to do, that he had promised, and he had made known not every one of Israel was of God. Though Israel was as numerous as the sands of the seas, there was only a remnant that was being preserved. It was no This should not catch anyone by surprise because God had been foretelling and warning of these things. So God is not unfair at all. But it does lead to the next most difficult question. Okay, so he is sovereign. He is electing. He is choosing. He is accomplishing his purposes. Then how can anyone possibly be saved? We just sit back and wait for God? We just sit back and decide that he has to choose? This is the work that, the question that comes up in our own minds. And what I love about is how the scriptures direct our thinking here. It directs us, here's how we ought to be thinking when these questions come up in our mind and cause us confusion these are the truths we must come and anchor ourselves in. This is an important discussion, and I love the fact that, again, the Bible doesn't avoid them at all. I know many people just want to skip over these chapters as they're tempted to say these themes are too hard to understand, too controversial, so we'll just skip over them. 
but as I've said before, we're kind of like the uh, exegetical special forces. We can't leave any verse behind. We must go through them all. We can't ignore any of them. They all have a voice. We must hear their message. And in hearing their message, we then are transformed and we grow by them. And so we're going to work our way through this text. And I believe that this next section comes from 930 through chapter 10. All follows this next theme, this theme of faith, saving faith, what it looks like, where it comes from, who needs it. Before we get into that, let me just set up a couple more ideas as we head into this text. Because some of the arguments come like this. You Calvinists don't preach the gospel. You who believe in God's sovereignty, you who believe that God is choosing and electing, you don't believe in the gospel, you just believe that God chooses everybody and just sit back and wait for God to do all of his work. And I just simply ask, well, what about Charles Spurgeon? He was preaching the gospel and one who held on to the doctrines of grace. And if indeed Calvinists are those who don't preach the gospel, how are their churches growing? How are the people coming to saving faith? Indeed, again, I understand the difficulty, but the difficulty isn't answered by sitting around in our rooms doing nothing and just trusting God's going to accomplish it all because God has given us a command, as we will see by the time we finish Romans chapter 10, he has called us to go out and preach. So there might be some who have overreacted to their doctrine, who have come to the first glimpse of God's sovereignty and overreacted in their response and assumed they had no responsibility. But I just say of those ones, they have not yet read their Bibles fully. Because the Bible clearly commands us to go to all the world and to make disciples. He has called us to proclaim the riches of the gospel. So when we come to this text then, we're going to navigate through these, these doctrines of faith and sovereignty, the doctrines of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, and we're going to walk this narrow road. And what it's ultimately going to do for us is tell us what we must think according to the scriptures to stay within the biblical parameters so that we do not fall off and err on either side of, of the line of truth, but we walk with where God would direct us in these things. When the natural temptations of our heart come up and we want to call God into question, we go back to the truth and remind ourselves of exactly what God has said here. And what he says is this. When anyone would ask, how is anyone saved? The simple answer is revealed right here in verse 30. And at the end of verse 33, the answer is by faith. You're saved by faith. Believe upon God, and you'll be saved. Believe upon his son, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Believe that you've fallen short of his standard, that you are under his judgment because you cannot obtain to his standard of righteousness. Believe that he is too holy to overlook sin and that he must judge it. Believe that through Jesus Christ you can be reconciled to God. Believe that you are unable, feeble, that your good works cannot rescue you, believe that it is by his grace and through his mercy you are saved. Believe upon God. That is how we are saved. 
And where that faith comes from and how we receive that faith will be the, the content of our series here through Romans chapter 9.30 through the end of chapter 10. We will look at all those nuances and angles by the time we finish this discussion. But the emphasis here is on faith. And Paul is building that. And he is talking particularly, if you notice uh, here, he is talking to this audience. He is calling these unbelieving Jews to faith. Back in chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, again, he, he identifies his audience. I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated for Christ are separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I want their salvation. I long for it, he says. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They, the Jews, they, his brethren, they whom he is concerned about, he longs for their salvation. Remember chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, you see this as well. For I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? There is, again, Paul's mind here is for his brethren, for the Jews. He desires their repentance. He desires to see their faith, and here he is defending the gospel to them so that they would, again, come to saving faith. This is Paul's purpose here. And as he, again, begins to lay out this purpose, he is going to defend the nature of faith against the works righteousness, the legalism or the self-righteousness of the Jews. That's what's being defended in, uh, in this section. Now, before we get into this text, I just want to give a kind of maybe reason why this is so significant for us. This is significant for us because I think if we evaluated our communication and our proclamation of the gospel, we have the tendency to be legalistic in the preaching of the gospel. Legalistic in our evangelism. And this is where you're going to have to listen careful to, carefully to me so that we are carefully walking together in this. We have the tendency to make repentance a requirement to lead one to saving faith. To bifurcate faith and repentance and to create such a distance between them that one must first order their life to give up certain sins, to clean up their life in order for them to believe upon God. Instead of being faith and repentance inseparably linked, we begin to become legalistic and separate it. 
And it comes like this when preaching the gospel to somebody and, and the person says to you, I want to believe, what must I do to believe? And what becomes the tendency in our heart in that moment, if we're not careful, is to say, well, you need to stop this sin and you need to start reading your Bible. You need to start praying. You need to do these lists of things and then you can believe upon God. And if we're not careful, we move into a heresy that the church has wrestled with known as the marrow controversy. You can go back and study the marrow controversy in Cotton Matters who had defended this truth and he sought to defend that there is no prerequisite work required for one before salvation. We must believe and upon believing we repent and we walk in newness of life. So where would this idea come from? Well, I think, first of all, it comes from the, the fact that we ourselves are inclined to see our own sins and failures and think, i got to get this fixed before I can turn to God. We are inclined, naturally, within our own hearts to believe, my life is such a mess, I have messed up in every way, Everyone else around me seems to have their life in order, but I don't. I need to get it cleaned up and then believe upon God. It's the natural temptation of the heart. But also there's confusion. When we go and we read through the scriptures, we read passages like Matthew 3 and verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's John the Baptist preaching that message. John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 says this, this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then notice, repent and believe in the gospel. There is an emphasis on repentance, an emphasis on turning, an emphasis on turning away from your former manner and walking in a new direction. Acts 3.19, repent and therefore end, return. Acts 26 and verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God. There's an emphasis on repentance. And indeed, repentance is an essential part of saving faith. It is a critical part, but there is a danger that I want you to be aware of and understand. It's a danger that gets exposed in our text here this morning that we ought to be very careful of, and it's this. If you or I should, in our proclamation of the gospel of faith, create a prerequisite work that one must do before they can believe, we are trusting in righteous, our own self-righteousness. We are setting up for them that they can order themselves, that they can work themselves to be pleasing to God, and that God would be receiving them on that basis. And that was the heir, the Israeli, the Jews had embraced when they were trusting in their own works. And this is the air that Paul is going to unmask. Now just to be clear here, I'm not saying repentance is not necessary. I'm not saying that it's uh, it's going to come years later after faith. I'm saying they are inseparably linked. And I could even make the argument The first act of faith is an act of repentance. The very time in which I have believed upon God, I am turning from a former manner of life, which 
Again, Ephesians 2 describes as being hostile to God. Colossians 1 describes as a life that was in the domain of darkness and now transferred into the kingdom of God. So that the moment in which we believe upon God, at that moment, my mindset is already changed about God. He is no longer my enemy, but now my friend. He is no longer an obstacle opposed to me. He is now my father whom we draw near to. So the act of faith is an act of repentance. But repentance continues on and faith continues on in newness of life, as we will see as we go through this study. Faith, repentance, inseparably linked. But let us guard our hearts lest we create a series of works that one must do to make themselves right. How will we know that this is a problem? Well, let's just unpack our text and see it this morning. What we're going to do here, here's our outline to walk our way through this text. We're going to see the faith of the Gentiles, verse 30. We'll then look at the failure of the Jews, verses 31 and 32. And then we will see the promise of God in verse 33. Faith of the Gentiles, failure of the Jews, and the promise of God. And again, as we walk through this, here's the marvelous truth we're going to see. The promise of salvation through faith in Christ is vindicated by the faith of the Gentiles, and the failure of the Jews to work their way to saving, or work their way to salvation. This is the truth that Paul lays out. So the first truth, the faith of the Gentiles, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, It's very important as Paul starts this out. He says, look at this. These Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it. That phrase, who did not pursue righteousness. You need to come to grips with that emphasis here. The argument is this. The Gentiles who were on the complete outside, the ones who were outside of the covenants, outside of the promises, the Gentiles who were without hope in this world, the Gentiles who did not have the fathers, They didn't have the word of God delivered to them. The Gentiles who were filled with sin, walking in ungodliness, they were a people of sin. They were a people of rebellion. They were guilty and hopeless and even contented in their hopelessness. Hostile to God, enemies engaged in evil deeds. They did not think about God. They did not desire God. They did not want the things of God. They were completely happy and contented in their rebellion These found righteousness. You say, what in the world? How in the world did these rebellious, godless ones, the ones filled with corruption, the ones filled with murder, the ones filled with adulteries, how is it that these were saved? And I love this, again, the phrase there, who did not pursue righteousness. It wasn't even in their vocabulary or in their practice to go after that which is righteous. They weren't pursuing it. They weren't seeking this gift. They weren't trying to live up to a standard. They were living in their open rebellion. Pause right there for a second. Let me give you just an encouragement. You were struggling struggling under the weight of sin, thinking about your life filled with sin, and you might have thought this coming to our ministry. Somebody 
invited you here or dragged you here, and you're like, okay, I'm looking around, seeing all these lives, they measure up, and my life doesn't measure up. And you're going to be tempted to conclude one of two wrong thoughts. You're going to be tempted to think this, first wrong thought. Everyone here has their life together, and I don't measure up. So I either need to get my life in order so I can measure up with everybody else and then follow like they're following, or I've got to get out of here. And I would just remind you of this marvelous truth here in verse 30. The ones whom God rescued, their lives didn't line up. Second false truth, the second false idea that one is tempted to believe. Sorry, you can applaud later. But <laughs> the second idea that one might be tempted to think is this. My life is so messed up, there's no possible way I could change. It is so corrupted, so short, so missing the mark that there's no possible way. I try, I keep falling short. I keep going, and I land on my face. I can't make the kind of progress I need to make. And again, I would remind you of verse 30 here, that these Gentiles who were so corrupted attained righteousness. That is, they attained the ability to stand before God as perfect. Say, how in the world did that happen? Notice the end of the verse. It gives us the answer. Even the righteousness which is by faith. Faith qualified them to stand before God. Faith caused them to measure up. Their faith then led them to be transformed into the image of Christ. They did not work themselves right to God. They believed God transformed them. God credited them. And then God is conforming them into the image of the Son See, we need to see our sin properly. There is no possible work that we could do to fix just one past transgression, let alone a lifetime of past transgressions. How hard would you have to work to just pay off one sin? You can give me a whole bunch of of a list of things you could do, ways you could sacrifice, things you're willing to give away. None of it would even begin to touch the debt. Why? Because the debt is this. One sin deserves death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. You must die for one transgression, let alone a lifetime of transgressions. There's no possible works that we could do to earn favor that God would be pleasing that he would receive us. It must be by faith. Again, one might say, yes, but my life is so filled with these things. I haven't sought them. I'm, I'm corrupted. I'm guilty. Say, You're absolutely right. I don't argue against any of those things. You're absolutely right. Your life has fallen short, so believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, again, that there's no strength within yourself. Believe that you cannot earn righteousness. Because here is the distinction of the self-righteous and the righteous. The self-righteous says, my works qualify me. I'm able to stand before God because of what good I have done. That is what satisfies God's wrath. And the answer is emphatically no. That is the hearts of the legalist. We, on the other hand here, approach God, which he says, which is by faith. Out of the Gentiles who didn't seek God, become righteous, receive the righteousness of God. He says they received it by faith. What is faith? 
Well, we talk about faith in a couple different ways. First of all, we talk about the faith. What is the faith? We reference is what we believe. The content of what we believe is the faith. Content we believe about God, we believe about man, the doctrine which the church teaches, all that the word of God entails reflects, reflects the faith. But when we talk about faith, we're talking about particularly a trust in the teaching of God's word and our commitment in following it. So what we're talking about by faith, that we have entrusted ourselves to the word. And traditionally, saving faith has had three parts to it, a knowledge, an assent, and a trust. We know the truth of God's word, we assent to it and affirm that it's right, and then we yield our will to that truth, that is saving faith. I believe what the Bible says. I affirm that there is no other way but what the scriptures say, and then I yield my will to what it says. There is the demonstration of saving faith. And here, it says that the Gentiles, the one who were wicked and outside, hostile in rebellion to God, these rebellious Gentiles, outside of God's promises, not even desiring after God, turned to God by faith. And believed upon him and received, uh, received righteousness. That is the gospel that we proclaim richly. And this is what we must be careful of when we come down and we, we preach the gospel. Because again, I was, someone came up to me after the service and wanted to clarify. Are you saying there's no repentance? What I'm saying is you're not repenting for a series of weeks, months, years, getting your life in order so that you can finally believe. That is works righteousness. That is an attempt to earn favor with God. That cannot be. No, the first act of faith is repentance. The first act of faith is to believe. The first act of faith in believing upon God is turning from my former manner of life and turning to God and following after him. Again, you'd ask, well, how has that faith come? Just wait, we'll get to that. Romans chapter 10 Nine and following, we will answer that particular question. But for now, what we must see is this. These Gentiles received salvation by faith. That's how they were saved. Proclaims. We proclaim that message. Now, that is contrasted with the failure of the Jews. Notice verse 31 through 32, the failure of the Jews. Says, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, I'll just clarify here now. Here is the failure of the Jews. They pursue a law of righteousness. They, on the other hand, were contrasted to the Gentiles. The Gentiles who did not pursue, the Jews, on the other hand, did. And boy, did they pursue with all their effort. The best possible human effort fell short and did not, as verse 31 says, did not arrive at that law. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. I want to show you the Lord's rebuke of the religious leaders in Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 23. This is a 
coming in the final week of our Lord's life. And in this final week, he is confronting the religious leaders. First of all, at the beginning of the week, they were hostile towards him. They were asking him a series of questions. They were trying to get him in some kind of contradiction. They wanted him to contradict Moses. They wanted him to contradict the teachings. They wanted him to get to stumble over the difficult doctrines that they were wrestling with about the resurrection and other things about taxes. He answered all of their questions precisely and clearly from the scriptures. And then he turns the tables on them. And this is Matthew chapter 23. He turns the tables, and these are the last words that he says to the religious leaders as far as instruction. And he gives a series of woes from Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13 through verse 36. He gives a series of woes condemning their hypocrisy. He was condemning their their religious traditions and their efforts and their failure to live up to, again, the righteousness of God. Just a series, some verses here. Notice verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. He's saying, you're not even leading people to salvation. I mean, it used to be believed of of the religious leaders, they were a shoe-in, and who else is going to get in? And Christ is saying here, you're not even entering, and nobody following you is entering. Verse 15, what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte? When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Like Nobody is entering into eternal life through your proclamations, what you're teaching. And then he goes on and he exposes some of their false doctrine here, verse 16. What do you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, that is obligated. Here he exposes some of the various practices that they would do. And they would go in and say, well, you can't make an oath. First, yeah, you can't make an oath, but you can't make it by the temple. He said, no, no, that's not the issue. You can't make it by the gold in the temple because that, is, by the way, is what the altar was made of. And so because of the, that work, you, that's where you must make your binding oath. They changed the rules. They changed the customs. They changed the teaching of God. And Christ here is calling them out on it. Verse 19, you blind men, which is more important, the offering of the altar that sacrifices the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And he goes on, turn down verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. This is really significant here because he's saying to them, okay, yeah, you give, you sacrifice in your giving, in your tithes, yeah, you give from your oils, you give from your income, you give your wheats and grains and all those things. But more than that, you even go into your gardens and give of those things. You go and you give of your dill and mint and cumin, all those things that you would grow around your house. You're even sacrificing in that level. You go further in your pursuits. But you miss justice and mercy and faithfulness. You miss the 
the weightier things of the law. This was their practice. They've forgotten Micah 6 8. He has to- told you, old man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You have abandoned the weightier things. You have abandoned the ways of God. You have abandoned the righteousness of God for your self-righteous works, your personal sacrifices. And Oh, had they created a sophisticated system to walk in. They went down so much as to define how much, you know, when talking about the Sabbath, what would constitute work on the Sabbath. You know, if you were a woman on the Sabbath day, you couldn't fold laundry and put it away. But you could put as much laundry on and walk to a new room and take it off. That wasn't work. But to fold it, put it up, and carry it to another room, well, that was work. How much was a burden to carry? It could weigh no more than a fig. And on and on, their list of regulations went for you to be able to keep the law. And they were very precise in all of those details. Yet Christ rebukes them here, saying, Well, all that pursuit of righteousness, all that attempt to be right, all of that attempt, they were, as verse 24 says, you were blind guides who strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. Both, again, were a violation of Levitical law, but he showed them, you were there straining at this and wildly contradicting the things of God. Turn back to Romans 9. That's just the point in all of their precise efforts to try to keep the law, even you know, sacrificing mint and dill and cumin, in all their attempts at the, to be precise in their application of the law, they kept falling short. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. The temptation is to believe the problem is the law. The problem is that, that, the, that the law is the problem that keeping it does not satisfy God. That's not the problem. The problem is not with the law. Turn back to Romans 7. Paul makes this clear. The problem isn't with the law as if the law had failed. The Jews were striving to keep the law and trying to keep the law in precise ways. The problem isn't with the law. That's what Paul says, chapter 7, verse 7 and following. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Jump to verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity... Through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The standard isn't the problem. The law isn't the problem. The problem is, back to Romans 9 and verse 32, was the unbelief in Israel. Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works. There's the contrast. One 
believes that there's some kind of work that they could do that would qualify them or prepare them, they miss it. That's what the Jews were doing. They were going to the law and they were keeping the law. They were setting up their own righteousness. They were pursuing it to the, with all their energies and efforts and they missed the righteousness of God. It wasn't a problem with the law because the law kept exposing the fact that they missed the weightier things, as Jesus said. They missed justice and righteousness and faithfulness. They missed it. Failure, again, there is no possible way that one can order themselves to make themselves right to be able to receive the righteousness of God. The law cannot redeem. The law can only reveal the corruption in, the, in our hearts and lives. This leads us then to the promise. The final point, verse 33. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed Here's the quote of Isaiah 28 in verse 16. This is the quote. In Zion, God lays a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And notice the the phrase, and he who believes in him. Clearly, this stone of stumbling and rock of offense refers to an individual whom we must believe upon. Peter quotes this exact same passage in 1 Peter 2, our scripture reading this morning. It was Christ who was sent as that stone of stumbling. One must turn to Christ and see Christ. Imagine this. Imagine you were a Jew. Your whole life was trained in precisely keeping the law. Every week you were reminded of how to keep the Sabbath and not be burdened, how you were to live righteously, what sacrifices you were to make. And then Christ comes along and says, all of that was worthless. Your works don't measure up. Your keeping of the Sabbath doesn't measure up. Your works were worthless. Your works were empty. Your works didn't save you. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to them. They put in so much energy, so much effort, kept the law to the best of their abilities. They had spent countless hours thinking about the right application of the law, arguing about the right application of the law, and it amounted to nothing. It didn't save them. How would you respond in that moment? probably with the same open hostility that the religious leaders had towards Christ when he exposed their unrighteousness. Because this is where their trust was in all of their efforts. And yet here, Isaiah quotes and makes the promise, is this stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Hope, salvation, Deliverance came through believing upon Jesus Christ. That's the promise of God for salvation for those who believe. Again, we come through this, and this is just the warm-up to this whole section in regards to faith and the working of faith. Notice how Paul is laying out this discussion. 
having just talked about predestination, having just talked about election, having just demonstrated the sovereignty of God, having just explained that man is not standing over God as God's judge. God is doing exactly what he wishes to do. He is saving and accomplishing his good work, and he is going to accomplish it, and no one, no one's unbelief will thwart him. Notice what he doesn't say in his argument here. He doesn't say, go on a mission and find the Lamb's Book of Life and see if your name is written in there. He doesn't say, find a marking on your body somewhere that says you're elect. He doesn't say, go on and just wait at home for God to reveal whether or not you are elect. He doesn't say, try to search into eternity past and see if before the foundation of the world, you were one of the ones selected. Nor does he say that it's all up to the will of God. What he says here is believe. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness received it by faith. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. See, Paul just lays out these truths. God sovereign directs According to his good purposes, now believe. Believe. Come to the one who is the stumbling block. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the rock of offense. Believe upon him, and you will not be disappointed. We don't need to fear God's sovereignty. We don't need to wonder how it all works out. Simply need to respond to the word of the Lord and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, when the law of God, and when the scriptures expose our sin, and we see the greatness of our sin, and it's ever before us, let's just admit, God's assessment of us is absolutely right. His assessment of the human heart, and the human condition, and the rebellion is spot on. And his remedy is equally as right remedy of righteousness that is found through faith in Jesus Christ. How do I get this faith? Well, Paul will answer that. And this comes through the hearing of the word of God. And what is that faith? What does it look like? Well, it comes with confession. We confess that Jesus Christ says, Lord, and believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And this Newness of life will lead to then a, this faith will lead to newness of life. It will lead to transformation. So what we'll see and what we rejoice in is in the power of the gospel that God saves his people by faith. And next week, or next time, in two weeks, we'll come back together in Romans chapter 10 and begin to unfold faith and its origins. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your grace revealed in your word. certainly exposes all those little tendencies in our hearts where we want to trust in ourselves, trust in our own wisdom, trust in our own power and strength, when we want to turn to ourselves in the moments uh, of our conviction, when we experience guilt and shame, we want to look to ourselves to try to get it right, simply yield our lives in faith. 
May we be the people quick to confess sin, quick to bring it before you and acknowledge our transgression. And may we then in faith turn, to our, turn from our former practices and follow after you. We're thankful that it is your righteousness credited to our accounts which makes us able to stand before you. And we're thankful that we are being conformed into the image of the Son each day more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And while we strive to obey, we strive not as a, out of fear of condemnation, nor as a, an attempt to earn pleasure and favor from you, but we strive because we love you. We love holiness. We love righteousness. We love the path of godliness. We love the peaceful fruit of righteousness and its effects in our, in our hearts and in our families and lives. We rejoice knowing that our best efforts are filthy rags. But we have been covered in the spotless garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we would not turn from the head of the church, but to him, that we would yield and listen to his voice in all things. And wherever our master directs us, may it be our joy to do it, because we, again, are called by his name. And may we, as we proclaim the riches of the gospel and as we are ministering to those who are distressed and burdened by their sin and we see their lives filled with guilt and they're crying out in shame, may we not be tempted to try to cleanse them in human effort. But may we always rejoice with them that cleansing comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So anchor our confidence in your message and anchor our convictions in your word so that in all these moments we'd always accurately reflect what you have proclaimed. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.